Uh, well, uh, Lucy and I have been married for 11 and a bit years now, and, uh, and we got married and then started, uh, started working for a church two weeks later. We had our honeymoon, and we went straight into training. Um, so we've, we've never been uh, paid particularly well. Uh, we went from MTS, which is well, uh, like a, a traineeship, to Bible college, straight into church planning. Um, so we've always had to watch our money pretty carefully. We've always had to budget. It's never been an option. Uh, but recently, we've uh, restructured using uh, this guy, uh, the Barefoot Investor. I don't know if you've come across him. He's one of the most popular investment gurus around. Uh, now, I, I can recommend him. I think he's got some good advice. Watch out. He'll tell you to make an idol of financial security. That's what all most financial investors will do. They'll say, hey, this is where your security is found. Uh, but... Uh, As I've been working through the Barefoot Investor with Lucy, I've often found myself wondering, what would I do if I had something significant to invest? Uh, As he's talking about investment and how to use your money well, I found myself wondering, what would I do if I had $100,000 to invest? If I I got a surprise uh, inheritance of a million dollars, how would I invest it? Have you ever found yourself wondering that? Have you ever self wondering, what would you do? What would I do uh, if I had uh, this, this amount of money to invest? Uh, now, I reckon you'd feel a bit of pressure, wouldn't you? You'd feel a bit of pressure to do it well. You wouldn't want to stuff it up. Uh, not just the excitement of the opportunity, but the pressure not to waste it. Uh, now, as today as we open up the Bible, we have a word from Jesus, a word to us, where he raises the stakes uh, and he shows us a few things. He shows us that we have been entrusted. We've been entrusted with something significant to invest. Uh, We've been given something uh, and we've been given the time to do it. But what's more, uh, we see that we'll be held held accountable for how we invest. Uh, We'll we'll be held accountable by Jesus for how we invest. The stakes couldn't be higher uh, because we also see that there is a heaven and a hell. And what we do now determines how we spend eternity. Uh, So it's really high stakes this week. Uh, He shows us this by by telling these three connected but independent stories across Matthew 25. Uh, And they're all about the same thing. They're all talking about investment. We'll see that. But that they highlight different things and they escalate as he cycles through them. Um, So Margie's going to read that for us now, the Bible reading. uh, And she's going to come up uh, and undo it. If you've got a church Bible, page 6. Seven, seven, and we're reading the whole of Matthew 25. Thanks, mate. Okay. So, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. 
But he replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me and I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. 
They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Thanks, Margie. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? Uh, and this is, again, one of the reasons why we work through books of the Bible, because God's got stuff in here that sometimes uh, is a bit confronting. Uh, so please join me and pray with me as we jump into this passage. Father God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for coming to this earth uh, in, in love and grace to reveal yourself to us. We thank you for becoming a human that we might know you Uh, that you might save us. We thank you for your words uh, here in Matthew 25, faithfully recorded for us. Uh, And we pray now that you will open uh, our eyes and minds and hearts to these words. Please help me to speak clearly and truthfully uh, and help us to really apply them to our lives, not to just hear them, but to to do your words. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Now, we're going to work through this uh, chapter today. Uh, really seeking to hear what Jesus has to say uh, on this topic. Uh, And it's this topic of of where can we invest what we have? Where's the best place to invest what we have? Uh, But instead of focusing on each story, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at these stories side by side and we're going to see the three main themes that stretch over this chapter because the three stories, they do parallel each other uh, and we'll see what they've got in common but also what they individually highlight. Uh, And and first of all, we're going to see uh, that we have been entrusted with something significant to invest and we've been given the time to do it. Uh, We see this from the first part of both the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the master and the servants. Uh, We see it in those first five verses of the chapter. Uh, And and if you're not familiar with this word parable, what that is, uh, a parable is a story that... Uh, is used to explain something. Sometimes it's used to make it clear, like an illustration. Sometimes it's used to cover uh, or hide the meaning. Uh, But it seems in this case, these parables, they're stories, they're illustrations, if you like, uh, to show us what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's how Jesus kicks off. The kingdom of heaven is like. Here's a story, uh, something that you're familiar with, a normal event that will help you understand what I'm talking about. Uh, So that's what a parable, and it's describing for us a culturally normal scene of a wedding. Uh, Now, it doesn't seem culturally normal for us. You probably thought, whoa, ten virgins, what's going on? Does the groom get to pick? Uh, Is he marrying all ten of them? What's going on here? Uh, Now, it seemed culturally what happened with weddings uh, at that time was there'd be the wedding ceremony, the bridegroom and the bride, they'd get married, they'd uh, do the ceremony, then they'd go off through the town, uh, to the bride's family uh, house, and that's where they'd have a nuptials celebration. Bit awkward, we don't do that anymore, but they'd scoot off to the bedroom while all the family stood outside. Uh, you know, a bit awkward. Uh, and they'd come out, they'd sort of consummate the marriage, uh, and then they'd come out, and this is before the reception. Uh, and then as a, as a group, they'd walk back through the town uh, with all the wedding guests joining the procession. Uh, so that's culturally what's going on. Where, where, where are you going? What is going on here? But that's, that's how they did weddings back in the day. Uh, and, and what would happen, it seems, uh, that there were, it was the job of uh, the unmarried women or the, the virgins 
uh, to light the way. Now you might think, oh, well, why do they get a special job? Well, we do that at weddings. All the unmarried ladies get there, get ready to catch the bouquet. You know, if you're a married lady or a man, you don't go join in with that. We know, we know that this is a culturally normal thing. Uh, so they would have gone, oh, yeah, that's right. All the unmarried ladies, they get their lamps and they light the way. That's part of their job in this wedding celebration. Uh, so this is a very normal practice that they're picturing that Jesus is describing. But these ten virgins whose job it is to light the way, they have different approaches to the task. Uh, some are very organised, very ordered. They think, oh, we don't know how long it's going to take. The bridegroom might be a long time, uh, so we'd better take some extra oil. Um, but some others, they weren't so prepared. Uh, we also see that the bridegroom did take a long time. Uh, you know, it took a while to do this ceremony back in the bride's house. And by the time they come back, they'd, they'd had a snooze. Uh, it was late in the night. Um, it was actually midnight by the time uh, he comes back. So that's the first part of this parable. Now, jumping forward to the second parable of the master and his servants, there's a lot of similarities. Even though the, theme, the, the story's different, there's a lot of similarities. Uh, there's, again, a long amount of time. Uh, the bridegroom was a long time in coming. The, the master went on his journey. We find out later, later that he was away for a long time. Uh, we also see that there's a task given. Uh, like the virgins have the job to be ready, light the way, there's a task given to the servants. Uh, in this case, the task is to invest the master's money. He said, okay, I've got this, this cash, these talents. Uh, now, uh, it's, it's hard to work out exactly how much it would have been. Uh, but it's upwards of a couple of million dollars in today's money. Uh, and because of the hugely disproportionate weight of wages, wages back in the day, this would have been an astronomical amount of money that each of these servants are giving, the sort of money you, you couldn't even dream of ever being given. Uh, and and they're, they're given that with a job to invest it. It's not just hang on to it. They know what they're meant to do with it. Um, uh, there's also different approaches to the task. In the same way, there were some wise and some foolish virgins. Uh, there's, there's some servants who put the money to work. Uh, and back in the day, that would have meant uh, buying a business. That would have meant commissioning some fishing boats to be built uh, so that you could start a fishing fleet. They, they built businesses. They took risks. They, they invested that huge amount of money and they put it to work. Uh, and another one had a different approach. He he buried it. He, he was a bit nervous. He didn't want to lose it. It was a bit risky. So he digs a hole and he buries it. Now, now what are, what's going on here? What is this about? Uh, well, the context, it's about Jesus' return. It's about the time between the cross, resurrection, ascension of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, which we're still waiting for. It's pretty clear that Jesus is the bridegroom or the master. That's who it's talking about. We see that very clearly in that third section. Um, and, and the virgins, the servants, well, who are they in the story? Who do they line up with? Uh, well, it seems to be they line up with people, people in general. Uh, particularly Christians, those, uh, or I say Christians, those who consider themselves Christians, those who are hearing these words, it seem to be the ones who are, who are being targeted by these, uh, these words of Jesus. But it does seem that the, the virgins, the, the servants, it does seem to be everyone, all people. Uh, now, what have these people been entrusted with? Uh, what's the talent uh, that the servant's been given? What's the equivalent of the job or the oil that they've been given? Uh, well, there's a few things that fit in here. Uh, the first that it's good to say is, is that the common grace things that everybody gets. 
Now we talk about special grace and common grace. There's a common grace from God uh, that goes on everyone. Uh, The Bible talks about the rain falls on the godly and the ungodly alike. Uh, If you're an atheist farmer or you're a Christian farmer, you'll probably get rained on the same amount. That's the way it works. There's common grace. Everyone who's alive is able to breathe. That's that's a grace. That's something God has given. Your your very life. Uh, If you do the sums uh, on what is the chances of you existing, uh, you think how many million sperm were were racing along and you're one one. You know, you're one one. Uh, And then your mother carries you through, uh, right through to birth. Out comes a healthy baby. You survived your toddler years. How do any toddler survive? Now, the, the, the chances of you existing are, are just tiny, astronomically small. That is a gift. That is, that is an investment of God. He's given you a life. Uh, if you have physical health to whatever level or physical ability to whatever level, that's something God's given you. That, that, that's, that's a gift. Uh, the fact that you were born in Australia or wherever you were born, uh, that's a gift. We live in a country where socially we're quite well off, where there's education available. That's a gift. All these things could be wrapped up in these talents, these investments in people that God gives. Uh, but more than that, if you're a Christian or you've been around Christian people or you've heard the good news of Jesus, that is something else that God has given you. He's given you the gospel. He's given you access to the Bible in your language. Perhaps he's given you Christians in your life who've loved you, who've cared for you, uh, who've shared Jesus with you. All these things wrapped in together, that's what we're getting at when we call talent. That's what God has invested in each of us uh, to whatever level. I, I want to note out that, um, that they're given in different amounts uh, and that's just, just part. We, we know that, don't we? Some people are healthier than others. Some people are wealthier than others. Some people are smarter than others. Uh, some people are born in Australia and others in Nigeria. That's, we, we are given different things. We're all been given something, though, to invest. And we've been given time to do it. We've been given a treasure. Uh, and it's these things, it's our lives and all that they are, that we have the opportunity to invest. I, I'm thinking, oh, well, if only I had something significant to invest, like a million dollars. I do have something to, significant to invest. My life, my health, my words, my intellect. All these things I, I have to invest. We, each of us have something to invest. Uh, so not only has God given to each of us what we have, he's entrusted it to us. That's the language of this parable. It, we've been entrusted with something. It's not ours. It's, we're entrusted with it. What are you going to do with it? But also, we're going to be held accountable for how we invest that. And we see this in the the second two chunks of the passage. First, the master and the servants, and then that that scene of the day of judgment. We see the master first returning after a long time and calling them uh, to account. He settled account. He he called them to account. Uh, And he he makes an assessment, uh, both on how they've used their time and how they've used the resources that have been, they've been entrusted with. That's what we see. It's this picture that it's not just given an investment, entrusted to do what you will with. There's a reckoning. There's an accounting. There's a calling forward and saying, what have you done? What have you done with what has been entrusted to you? Uh, we see that very same pattern 
uh, as we step into the, the third section, uh, which is uh, very clearly a description of the day of Jesus' return. Uh, that, that's how it's described. That's the word Jesus used. So it's not a parable this time. It's a description of a future event. And again, there's a, a reckoning. There's a, a calling to account uh, explicitly of all people. That's what Jesus says here. All the nations. Jews, Gentiles, all the nations. It uh, doesn't matter whether what your race, your gender, your nationality, your class. Uh, we see this throughout the Bible. This, this, this day that is coming. When all men and women, every person who's ever lived, will be called to account, will be gathered. And the thing we see, the thing that each individual is accountable for, is their actions. The way they've lived their life. How they've invested what they've been given. How you've invested your life. And and all that goes with that. Their money, their time, their attention, their loves. That, that's what we'll be accountable for. And how we've done that, that will be rolled out as, as evidence. The way we've used our lives, that's what's being presented here. The way we've used our lives, what we've done with our lives, will be presented as evidence. It's a courtroom scene. This is the basis on which uh, God is going to do this reckoning. Now, we need to pause here because a, a quick glance at this passage could lead us to think what much of our culture thinks. And that is that that doing good, uh, doing charitable actions, is what earns us enough credit to get to heaven. And now, now that might be what it looks like at first glance, but that is not what's happening here. As we dig a little deeper into this passage, uh, what it's saying, which is consistent with the rest of the Bible, is that our actions aren't what give us heaven credit, but instead our actions are evidence of what our heart is really like. So our actions, our charitable deeds, our good deeds, they don't give us credit, but they are evidence of what is going on on the inside, what our heart is really like. Now, we see it in the servant who didn't invest well, who buried his money. Have a look at his excuse there. So what he says, it's an excuse, isn't it? Well, you know, bring forward what he said. Oh, I've got an excuse. I know that you're a hard man. Master, I know that you're a hard. You don't. Even, you don't. You you want to reap where you've not sown. You want to you want to gather where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I, I hid your money. Now, now we, we we look at that, and I want us to ask: Is that true? Just from the story, just assuming we know nothing about God, just look at the story. Is that excuse true? Think about this master. He gave talents. Millions of dollars to his servants. Is, is, that, is that wanting to harvest where you've not sown? No. He, he, he sowed thousands, millions of dollars into these servants and expected a return. That, that's an excuse. It's, it's not even consistent with what's happened. He, he, he's saying, oh, you didn't sow anything to me. And the master's going, hang on a minute. I, I gave you like a million bucks. It's not like I'm asking you to produce results. It's just an excuse. The master shows it to be an excuse by repeating it and saying, effectively, even if, even if that was true, you didn't live consistently with that. Even if it was true that I'm a hard man, even if it was true that I expect to gather where I've not scattered, you, don't, you didn't live like that. You didn't live consistently with what you say you believe. 
It's just an excuse. It's just an excuse. And then the master, he diagnoses the real problem. The real problem is the heart. The real problem is the heart. He says, you wicked, lazy servant. That's a a heart condition. See, the the failure to invest in his life in advancing the master's interests was a symptom, a symptom of what his heart was doing. He was lazy. He was wicked. And and he didn't like the master. He thought he was hard. You don't describe someone you like as a hard man. That's not a nice, pleasant description. It reveals what his heart is like. We see it again, that this real problem of the heart in the, in the last section, uh, where Jesus uh, is talking to the righteous, the, the sheep who is put on his right, uh, the righteous people, and he, he invites them into glory, and he says he gives the reason uh, why they can come into glory, and he, he cites their acts of love as evidence. And did you see when he did that? They're surprised. Did you notice that? They're surprised. They oh, when when did we do that? When did we care for you? Oh, they, they, they don't remember it. Now, what that tells us, what that tells us, is they weren't doing these actions to chalk up credit. If they were doing these actions to chalk up heaven credit, they would know exactly what he's talking about. When Jesus said. Oh, you know, you, you looked after me. They'd say, yeah, we did. I can remember that time I gave $2 to that homeless man on the street. I, I remember doing that. They, they're surprised they don't remember it because these actions are an overflow of their hearts. They weren't doing it to chalk up credit. They were doing it because their hearts had been so transformed that, that it just happened. It's just love. That, that's, that's what happens when your heart's been transformed by Jesus. And the Bible shows that this is always the case. This is always the case. What our hearts are like and what we truly value is displayed in our lives. The Bible uses a picture of a fruit tree. I'm a bit of an agriculturalist, so I love anything like that. Uh, and, and it pictures our lives as a tree. Uh, now, now, fruit tree, you put it in, uh, unless you're a botanist, often you don't know what sort of tree that is until it produces fruit. Uh, we've got a bunch of mandarin trees. We've got a lemon tree. Uh, we've got a, a lemonade tree. You can ask me about that later. Uh, they all look very similar. They've all got small, glossy leaves. Uh, they all look the same, but I, I don't know what they are until they produce fruit. And the Bible uses this picture. It says, a thorn bush doesn't produce grapes. And a fig tree doesn't grow thorns. And if you've got a bush that you planted... And you thought it was a fig tree and you see these wicked thorns on it. You see it creeping out and it's not growing any figs. What should you start thinking? Maybe it's not a fig tree. You've got an orange tree that's growing bananas. You start thinking, maybe they put the wrong label in at Bunnings. Maybe it's not actually what I thought it was. That's the picture of the Bible. Our lives are the tree and the fruit is evidence of what sort of tree you are. And you can't be producing one thing and say, oh, I know I've got bananas, but really I'm an orange tree. That, that, that's the picture that the Bible gives. Specifically, the Bible shows us that a heart of faith, a heart which has truly repented and followed Jesus in faith, will, uh, um, will sorry, and love will always produce a life that reflects that. that, that 
A heart that, that's repented uh, with faith in Jesus and love for Jesus will always produce a life that reflects that. Uh, in the book of James, James puts it like this. He says, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And he says, well, show me your faith without deeds. How, how are you going to display your faith without deeds? And I will show you my faith by my deeds. Oh, you believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. A couple of verses on, he says this. As a body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Just saying, I have faith. I believe Jesus. I'm a Christian. Just words. That, that's, that's, that's nothing. If it's not coming from a heart that really believes that. And a heart that really believes that will always produce fruit. Uh, Colin Buchanan sings a song. I won't try and sing it. Uh, but he sings, There's no such thing as an invisible believer. Google it when you get home. Uh, it's a bit boppy. Uh, but it's, it's, it, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as an invisible believer. Now what we see here is that we've, we've been given time We've been invested in by God. The fact that you're breathing, uh, that you can uh, take in nutrition and survive, uh, that you got yourself here or you're brought here, that, that's investment. The fact that you can hopefully understand the language that's coming out of my mouth, that you've got Bibles you can read, that is investment of God in you. We've been given time uh, and invested in by God. And we've been given this task, this task to respond to Jesus, to follow him, to have faith, to be transformed by him. And that will be evidenced uh, in our actions. That will be evidenced in our actions. What our heart's doing will be evidenced in, in how we live our lives. Our deeds, Jesus shows us, our works, our deeds will be rolled out as evidence of whether our heart truly has repented, whether or not we've truly had faith in Jesus. And as we're called to account, we see that the stakes couldn't be high. Uh, because what we do now determines eternity. What we do now determines eternity. And, and we see this clearly across all three of these sections. Uh, and as we move through the three, it, it escalates. It goes around and it gets, it gets bigger and clearer and frankly more terrifying. Uh, first of all, we have the, the virgins. Um, uh, the, the foolish didn't have enough oil. Uh, the bridegroom has come, their oil had run out. Uh, so they ran off. They tried to, they tried to scramble uh, at the last minute. We all know what that feels like. They scrambled at the last minute uh, to go buy some more oil, trying to get back in time. <clears throat> As they're scrambling, they're off trying to buy oil. Those who are prepared go into the feast uh, with the bridegroom. Uh, in they go. They're at the wedding banquet. Um, but those who aren't prepared are locked outside. They're locked outside. And the scene ends with them knocking on the door and the master, the bridegroom saying, I never knew you. The door's locked and it's not open. That's, that's, that's pretty serious, but it, watch how it escalates with the master and the servants. We already saw the master arrive. He came back from his journey. He called them to account. We've seen the assessment that he gave was, was actually based on their hearts. You're a good and faithful servant. And the heart was reflected in their attitude. You're good and faithful. And I can see that because you were faithful with what was invested in you. 
We've, now we see that their future experience is directly determined by how they've lived. Their future is directly determined by what they've done with their past, by how they've lived. And we see this language escalate, especially in the consequences. Um, the foolish versions, they, they, were, they were locked outside. <clears throat> Here the servant who is lazy and evil, as evidenced by his life, He's stripped of what he has. What you do have is taken away. Those things that God had invested in him, in our context, ability, opportunity, time, wealth, sunshine, all the good common things in this world, they're taken away. There's going to be none of the good things in this world in hell. They're taken away. And then he's described as worthless and thrown outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there is sorrow and there is anger, the darkness and exclusion where there is bitterness. That is not where you want to be. And that's not even the final escalation of this passage. In Jesus' description of his return and judgment, having described the paradise in store for the righteous, uh, the righteous whose righteous hearts are evidenced by their love, by what they've done, He turns to those who fail to love, who despite what they say, despite what they say they believe, whose lives have not evidenced by acts of love and compassion. And he says these words, depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And this whole section, it ends with this chilling statement. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The clear teaching of the Bible is that Jesus, God himself, believed and taught that heaven and hell are real. Jesus believed this. Equally glorious and horrendous. Both eternal, eternal life, eternal punishment. And where we spend eternity, where we spend forever, either in glory or in punishment, is determined by what we do in this life. It's determined by how we respond to Jesus in our hearts. And that is evidenced by how we live. It is always evidenced by how we live. This passage, these words from Jesus to us, they're they're more than information, aren't they? We can't just sit passively and hear this. Does it shock you? Does it shake you up a bit? Does it make you tremble and weep? Because it should. These are Jesus' words to us. Does it stir you to action? Does it make you want to act? Well, that's where we're going now. Well, what should we do? What should we do about this? Well, in this passage, there are three urgent urgent and immediate actions for us to take. And the first is that we need to prepare now. Now, by responding in faith to Jesus. Uh, The few verses I didn't read earlier, at the end of the parable of the virgins, uh, the door was shut, the door was locked, verse 11. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. 
And the implication is when that day and hour comes, there will not be a second chance. There will not be time to scramble off and buy oil. There will not be time to go, whoop, there's the Son of Man coming on the clouds. I'd better repent now. There will not be time. We have time now. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. He's been a couple of thousand years already. The master went on a long We have time now, but it will be cut off and it will be sudden. It will be unexpected. There will come a time when there are no more chances. And it will be either at the return of Jesus or your death. And either of those things can be sudden and without warning. And the only way to prepare, the only way to prepare is through faith in Jesus. That's the way we prepare. That's the message of the New Testament. Repent and believe the good news. Have faith in Jesus. Put your trust in him. We just sang about it, didn't it? I I trust in Jesus. Repenting means, means turning away from, from saying, I want to be the one who determines what's right and wrong. That's, that's what sin is. Sin is saying, I want to be the one to, to run my life, to work out how I'm going to live. And repenting is turning away from that. Turning away from that into Jesus and trusting him for forgiveness. Trusting him for cleansing, for life. It's about this heart response to Jesus. That's the way to prepare. And a heart that has truly repented, a heart that truly loves Jesus... And he's following him. A heart like that will produce fruit. Will always produce fruit. There is no such thing as an invisible believer. We saw that from James. And specifically from this passage, the the sort of fruit that Jesus tells us that heart will produce is love for the family. We see this in verse 40. Um, You see uh, when Jesus is talking to the, the righteous... And, they say, and he says, you're coming in because you, you loved me. You cared for me. You visited me. And they say, well, I, I don't remember seeing you around in my life. I don't remember doing that for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, what's he saying? I tell you, whatever you did for the least one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You did for me. These brothers and sisters of mine, that's Christians. That's Jesus' consistent language for Christians, for those who've been adopted by the Father. Jesus adopted brothers and sisters. It's love for the family, love for the Christian family, that is the mark of whether you belong to the family. I think often we read this and we read it quickly and we think that it's just the general needy, but it's specifically... Christians, the Christian family. Uh, he says it in John. John records Jesus saying it really clearly. A new command I give you, he says, love one another. He's saying that to Christians, not to humans, to Christians. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That is the fruit. If you belong to the family, you will love the family. And if you don't love the family... You don't belong to the family. Regardless of what you say you believe, if you don't love the family, Jesus says, you do not belong to the family. It's a symptom of what's going on in your heart, a symptom. It can be a good symptom of love or a bad symptom of no love. And we see here that he wants real action, not just words. 
Not just, oh, bless your brother, bless your sister, I'll pray for you. Uh, in 1 John, John, John picks this up in 1 John 3.16. He says, this is how we know what love is. You want to know what love looks like? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. If I just say I love Lucy, but never do anything to show it, do I love her? No. I'm trying to teach my daughters that. If someone says they love you, and they're not showing it by how they live, it's not true. It's always expressed. The heart is always expressed. Now, how can we do that? How can can we show this love? Now, I am super encouraged here because I see it. I see it regularly in this church. I hear of people having an operation or a baby or getting sick and meals turning up. Most of the time, I don't even know that that's happened. It's it's lovely. It's beautiful. I see people being generous, giving people lifts, checking in on each other, visiting, phone calling. Now, that might not be your experience in this church. And if that's not your experience, I'm sorry that's the case. And And I want to encourage you to get into a home group, a small group. That's where the bulk of our love happens because that's where we get to know each other. That's where I get to know whether someone needs some extra help or not. Because there's only seven or eight or nine of us there. And and I can realise, oh, yeah, they they, they need some care, some love. Not just a, I love you, I care about you, but some action, some truth. So so I want to say, this is great, this is encouraging, let's do it all the more. Let's make this community one that there's no doubt that that, that's what we're on about, because it's just so obvious. But but there's so much more that we can be doing, isn't there? We we are so wealthy in Australia and our needs, although there are real needs in our community, they seem so small by comparison to what is going on for our brothers and sisters across the globe. Uh, There there is unbelievable persecution. I just saw today that you're not going to see it on the news, but the uh, stuff that's happening in Sudan at the moment is, is horrendous. You just got to do a little bit of Googling and all of a sudden you will see there, there are our brothers and sisters who we will spend eternity with if you're a Christian who are suffering and dying and starving. St- starving. And I'm working out, well, what, what should I eat? What cut of meat would I like to have tonight? There, there is so much we can do. Will, will we... Will we love in, in action and deed or just in words? That, that's a great opportunity, this Save to Give Challenge. Now, now, it's not the only way to do it. If you've got other ways that you're already doing this, that, that's great, keep doing it. But this is something that I found really helpful. I want, to, I want to encourage that we can do this together. We can show real practical love, not just with words, not just with speech, but with actions. You know, we, we vote with our feet. We vote with our wallet, don't we? That's what we do. That's how we live. L- let's love. So that's the, the first explicit way that, that our, our hearts of love for Jesus and our faith in him will overflow. If there's not love for the family, you're not in the family, Jesus says. So express your love for the family. Express it. Do it. 
And the second way explicitly in this passage is that we are to be productive. Be productive for the kingdom. Now, now there are so many things that we could be doing in this life. There's so many productive things that we could be doing. Uh, Recently with my sheep, I've got a small flock of sheep and I've got into holistic management. I can save the world through the way I manage livestock. Love to introduce you to it. Um, Now, that's a productive thing to do. That's a productive thing to do. I can get carbon in the ground. I can regenerate pastures. How good will this be? That's productive. But that is not what this passage is talking about. Uh, Because uh, in the context, uh, the servant is a servant of Jesus. Now, Now, when we think about what a servant does, by definition, a servant serves the master. That, by definition, if you're a servant, you're serving the master. If you're not serving the master, you are not a servant. I don't know if you're aware, but the word minister uh, is just another word for servant. That, that, that's what ministers, we're, we're, we're servants. Now, a servant serves the master, you, you work through this. Serving the master always means advancing the master's interests. If you're a servant and you're not advancing the interests of the master... You're not helping him grow his empire or his business. You're not, a, you're not serving him. You're a pirate. You're not a servant. If you're not running with the master, you're, 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 you're taken over the ship. You're taken it somewhere else. And that for us means advancing Jesus' kingdom. Being a servant, being a member of Jesus' family means advancing Jesus' kingdom. The eternal kingdom that starts now that we see expressed in a small and beautiful way in in this church, but which spreads across the globe and lasts forever. The eternal kingdom that determines our experience of eternity. That is Jesus' kingdom. And that's what we're being called as Christians, as servants, to be productive in. Now, Now, some might argue that that sort of focus on eternity, on heaven and hell that that makes our lives here less significant. I've heard that's a language. That you'll say, oh, Liam, you're downplaying our lives. You're making this life less significant by being so focused on heaven and hell. But I want to make this really clear. The reality of heaven and hell, it does not make your life less significant. It makes your life infinitely more significant. Because it's this life, what you do now in this life, has eternal consequences. That makes this life infinitely more significant. What you do now, what we do in this life has eternal consequences for yourself and for all those you know and love. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for this warning that you you, you spoke. You spoke intentionally to be preserved for us today. You preserve these words to be read and shared and used amongst the community of your people until you return. And we thank you for that. We thank you that we can read them and hear them and we pray that you would help us to respond appropriately. We pray that you would help us uh, to to have faith, to have real hearts that love you, uh, real hearts that repent. We pray that out of the overflow of our hearts might come such evidence 
of good and fruitful hearts, that there will be no doubt in our minds or those of those, the mind of those around us as, as to what our hearts are like. That there would be such, such love for our Christian family, both here and globally, that there'd be no doubt that that's the family we belong to, that there would be such a commitment to being productive for your kingdom, that there would be no doubt about where our interests and passions lie. Father God, I pray for all of us that you would do this work in us and and we pray as we consider uh, the reality of heaven how we pray for those we know and love. Uh, For those who have not yet accepted uh, this good news, we, we, we want to pray, Father, that you would help us to so love them and, and then share with them that we would give them every opportunity, every opportunity to, to, to accept this good and glorious offer. So we, we bring these things before you in, in grateful thanks. In Jesus.